I greet you this morning. My name is Damon, and I have the joy and honor of being pastor with Families in Formation here at our church. And if you would stay in John chapter 12, and we'll get there shortly. I want to ask, would you be with me this morning? I am not set apart from you. I am with you to look into God's Word. I'd love to share things that I've been thinking about for the last several months. We were in this passage several months ago with our middle and high school students, and when I was asked to, in fact, that was Karis's first night to lead Bible study. Isn't that right, Karis? That's right. I'm just from, I just saw Karis smile at me. I don't know if she's actually smiling at me, but I chose to think about that way. Um, <clears throat> but I have been aware that when Lewis pointed towards this date, that this would perhaps be a place that I would like for us to hang out together in God's Word together. So I want to ask, would you engage with me? And would you begin by thinking about some of the intimate moments of your life? I'm not going to ask anybody to share and say what they are, but would you think, when you think perhaps of a time that was really special, maybe that special is really hard. Intimacy is not always joyful. But I do want to invite you to think about a time in your life or in the life of your family where you remember it being an intimate moment. It may not be pleasant, it may be hard, and you might would rather not think about it or talk about it, and I'm not going to force you. But it doesn't change the fact that it's an intimate moment that God has offered to you. It may be that when I ask you to think about an intimate moment, you think of something really precious and joyful And so if you insist, I'll share two of mine and a bonus. Throw the first picture up, Spate. Picture number one. March 3rd, 2020. The day after Emerson Marie Kelly was born. She's actually sitting in the back of the room this morning. This, this is an intimate moment to me. Go back, go back, sorry. This is a really intimate moment for me personally. Not pictured are our son Taylor and his wife Ashley. Pictured is our youngest Trey, our middle son Trent, his wife Meg, and one day old Emma. And I see three brothers and sisters leaning and looking at the face of their other brother and sister I think perhaps recounting the story of Emma's arrival. And I see the interest on their face. Emma's screaming, by the way, in the picture. She was one day old and she was like, this is the place? Here's the bonus picture. Next, thank you, Spate. This is Emerson Marie. Just from a few weekends ago. And then the next picture. I'm a granddad, so I would obviously show you a picture of my grandchild when asked to preach. This is in Todos Santos, Mexico. This was in April of 2018. And our middle son, Trent, and his wife that you just saw in the picture, they decided that they wanted to get married on a 25-acre 
operating mango orchard. They had absolutely no connection to it. They just found it and they decided they wanted to get married in a mango orchard. And so about 35 of us traveled to Todos Santos, Mexico, and we shared a communal time together over a weekend and celebrated, and we stood on a rooftop and we listened to them speak their vows. And then afterwards, we went to this magnificent table. They handmade and printed the table runner that stretched the full length of that table. They wanted to lay something in the middle of that table to welcome their family and their friends in this beautiful table. And that is an intimate memory for me as our family and friends gathered to mark a really holy occasion in the midst of our life, of our family. It is around a table. You can take it away, Spate. Thank you for y'all's help. It is at a table that I would like to invite you. Would you join me around the table this morning in John chapter 12? I'm inviting you to be there with me. Let's do a little setup. In John 11, Jesus has healed Lazarus, the brother of Martha and Mary, in quite dramatic form. Lazarus, according to the princess bride, was dead dead. He was four days dead. And so, even after four days of being dead dead, Lazarus, by the power and authority of Jesus, was brought back to life out of the grave and out of his grave clothes. And it's one thing for us to look on the pages of John 11 and to see a two-dimensional account of the fact that Lazarus was raised from the dead. It is another thing to actually consider that it is a Jesus-dimensional account. Quite honestly, I can read about Lazarus being raised from the dead and not be moved. But I invite you to think for a moment this morning, what would it be like if you were the one that encountered the Jesus dimensional moment and you had been raised from the dead? What would it be like if you were the family member of perhaps even someone sitting in this room and that actually happened in your family, I think it would be different than the two dimensions of this piece of parchment. That's something that has just happened in John 11. And there, coming out of that incredible moment is escalation. Would you look at verse, chapter 11, verses 45 and 46? And we'll kind of move towards chapter 12. John eleven forty five. 45, Therefore many of the Jews, this is just following Lazarus' resurrection, therefore many of the Jews who came to Mary and saw, that, saw what he had done believed in him, but some of them went to the Pharisees and told them the things which Jesus had done. Many were believing and some were tattling. I love the detail that we get. People from the area were coming to hear about what had happened to their friend Mary. That's the particular detail that we get in verse 45. The Jews who came to Mary and saw what had 
what he had done believed in him. It is in the midst of this special moment that things begin to stir even more. Jesus is causing quite a stir. So the Pharisees and the chief priests do, of course, what the Pharisees and chief priests would do. They convene a council. They are pondering the disruption of this man who is doing things that can't be fully explained. They are actually at times labeling it blasphemy and also taking into the account the following that is ensuing because of it. And they are aware that if he is not stopped, that Rome will come and take away their authority and their comfortable dominance that they have in the area. So, Caiaphas, who is the high priest for that particular year, he has thoughts. And would you look with me on a little further in chapter 11, verse 49, and I'm tempted for us just to be here this morning, but this is again just set up. Listen to the intricacy of verses 49 to 53. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all. Nor do you take into account that it is expedient for you that one man die for the people and that the whole nation not perish. Now he did not say this on his own initiative, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus was going to die for the nation. And not for the nation only, but in order that he might also gather together into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. So from that day on, they planned together to kill him. So don't miss this. He did not say these words on his own. And he did not fully know what he was saying. His words were that Jesus would die to save them from Rome coming and exerting dominance over them. God's words through him as a pawn was that Jesus would die, thanks be to God, to save the nations and to gather us all together. The limited scope of Caiaphas' words of prophecy explode into a moment that meets us sitting in this room together this morning. He was speaking words that he did not know and he was declaring without realizing it the unstoppable purpose and power of God. Our students have heard that as a word. It's called tupapog, which is just the first letter of the unstoppable purpose and power of God. Everybody say, Tupapog. Don't be nervous. Things are escalating. And this is where our intimate moment picks up around a table at a sober celebration. A celebration. Why? Because somebody who was dead has been raised from the dead. Are you kidding me? 
if somebody had been raised from the dead in this assembly and we were having Pavilion Day, it would take on new epic meaning today. Macaroni and cheese to the glory of God. But that's the situation that they were in as we'll move towards John 12. But it's also sober because in our verses this morning, someone who is alive will hint that a death is coming. I believe that we are invited to a sober celebration. Look at verses 55 through 57 and then we'll go into chapter 12. Now the Passover of the Jews was near and many went up to Jerusalem out of the country before the Passover to purify themselves. So they were seeking for Jesus and were saying to one another as they stood in the temple, what do you think? That he will not come to the feast at all? Passover water cooler conversation. Verse 57. Now the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he was to report it so that they might seize him. There was a unique buzz about this particular Passover. They know the routine of traveling into Jerusalem for the Passover. They've done this pilgrimage many times. This one was unique. There are questions being asked because of this man, and there are those who want to seize him. This particular Passover, the stakes have been raised. Would you join me at a table in John chapter 12, verse 1? Jesus, therefore, six days before the Passover, came to Bethany where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. As the swell and the buzz of Passover was happening, the historian Josephus would say perhaps maybe as, mil- as many as, a, as several million people Influxing in, it was a moment. And Jesus arrived six days early in Bethany, which was about two miles from Jerusalem. As a freshman in high school, I stood on the Mount of Olives with a group from my church. I did not know how to take that in. I look back to that moment now and realized that it really changed my life, being in that land. There's a part of the Mount of Olives where you can stand and you can look and you can see down into Jerusalem. It's magnificent. Even as a freshman, it's a pretty amazing scene. Jesus was in Bethany, which would have been two miles on that backside slope. So he would have not been in a place where he would have seen it. But make no mistake... At just two miles away, with two million perhaps folks coming in, there was awareness, even six days ahead, that stuff was going down. And imagine, as you think about what it might be like to anticipate an event that's happening for you, something special. Maybe it was one of the moments like I shared, where you arrive somewhere early and you're thinking about the event that's to come, and you're anticipating, and there's preparation. 
Imagine in that kind of a moment, what would it have been like for Jesus' soul six days out? Knowing what this Passover would represent. Mark, the gospel writer, tells us that Jesus arrives at this occasion at the home of Simon the leper. Matthew, the gospel writer, tells us that disciples were there. We get in this verse that Lazarus is there, and we also are going to see that Mary and Martha are there. We don't know because not every disciple was named, but we have the potential of maybe 15 to 17 folks here. It's a pretty decent dinner party. It was not just a couple of people. And remember that the context is that Lazarus, who is there reclining at the table, he has been raised from the dead. Imagine again what it would be like for you and I if a family member had been raised from the dead. Look at verse 2. So they made him supper there. Raise your hand. Dinner or supper? Who says supper? Hand raise. Supper, a few of you. Dinner, raise your hand. Uh, Something else? Maybe a few other possibilities. I love that we get this detail as John is recording this. So they made him supper. There, I love that on a day that we're going to go and we're going to feast together outside. It's an ordinary detail that is heightened in the reality of somebody has just been raised from the dead. Yeah, they made him supper, but they made him supper. It's a celebration. I would think that it was not simply an ordinary supper. And Martha is serving. Remember Jesus' encounter with her in Luke chapter 10? And Mary is at the feet of Jesus. We'll go there in just a bit. And Martha is serving. And it's interesting to note that Jesus does not tell Martha, you shouldn't serve. He just offers her perspective. And in our passage this morning, we find that it seems as though Martha is in somebody else's house and she is doing her thing because it says she's serving. So we have the familiarity of what's happening with Martha. And it says that Lazarus was one of those reclining at that table. I just imagine... Lazarus looking at Jesus and what that moment might have been like. I have a sense that Jesus, though he was a friend, was also a guest of honor. Verse 3. Mary then took a pound of very costly perfume of pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair, and the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. 
We're not going to take time to actually go there, but I just want you in the context of this sober celebration to, to remember times that we've seen Mary. In Luke chapter 10, when Martha is serving and Mary is at Jesus' feet, she is at his feet listening to his words in a posture of learning. In our pas- uh, passage just before in John 11, verse 32, she's run out to meet Jesus as Lazarus has died and is still dead, and she is there at his feet again in a place of dependence and in a place of surrender. And now, in verse 3 here, she is at his feet again in a place of honor. What is this being at the feet of Jesus a sign of? A sign of worship. A sign of humility. A sign of adoration. A sign of desire. A sign of desperation. A pint of pure nard. Here we go. Linda, you can correct me later, but I'm going to give this a shot. From the plant, and I just think this is really fun that this is what it, what it is. Nardostachys. N-A-R-D-O-S-T-A-C-H-Y-S, Nardostachys grandiflora, as it should be. Everybody say, Nardostachys grandiflora. We'll chat afterwards, Linda. Later we would hear that perhaps this might sell for 300 denarii, basically a denarii was a day's wage. So about three quarters of a year of salary. And the cost is not prohibitive for her. And it wasn't non-thinking. We are not encountering a moment of uncalculated movement. I believe that she was thinking. Is this an uncomfortable scene for you? How does it strike you to think of seeing someone down at someone's feet like this? Now, traditional foot care in the Middle East was expected. In a dry and arid climate, something would have been offered in kindness to offer cleansing and moisturizing. But it didn't stop there. A woman's hair in this time would have been described as a symbol of her glory. And in this particular moment, it seems as if perhaps her hair came down. What would a scene like that be like here? This is incredibly intimate. What we have just encountered in God's Word, this is really important, is not prescriptive of what worship must look like. We are not told 
this is what you are to do when you worship. However, not being prescriptive does not mean that we are not receiving the gift of it being descriptive. And we are receiving the account of the description of this humble worship that we get to feast on together this morning. This affects me a lot because I know that in my life that I have watched people worshiping in different ways than myself and I judge them. I have disdain for them. It seems awkward. Why are they doing that here? But perhaps in my judgment, what is actually really happening inside of me is perhaps I'm actually jealous. That I'm not as free with my wallet, my dignity, my reputation, my knees, my hair, my everything. Look at the end of verse 3. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume even after the actual time of when she offered this extravagant, beautiful kindness of humble worship. As people would catch a whiff of the perfume, perhaps 15 minutes, perhaps an hour, or on into the evening, the extravagant memory of what took place continued to live on as they would smell that smell in that home. What an intimate moment with Mary. Ah, and the plot thickens. Look at verse 4. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples who was intending to betray him, said, Why was this perfume not sold for 300 denarii and given to poor people? Now, he said this not because he was concerned about the poor, but because he was a thief. And as he had the money box, he used to pilfer what was put into it. The enemy, the devil, has been trying, I believe, to oppose enemy from the very beginning, all the way back in the garden. Seeking to sabotage intimacy between the creation with the creator. And it's trickled all the way to this moment with Judas. Who would, irony of ironies, later, relatively soon... Betray Jesus. He objects to such a costly, there was salary involved, passionate, so many levels of passionate humility, and calculated it was her hair and not a towel. He objects, and his supposed objection is that he has regard for the poor. B.S. Bad supposition. He was the thief concerned about himself and he was on his way to a costly 30 pieces of silver. Passionate. He's going to go through with it. Calculated. 
it'll be the one I kiss. Judas was locked in. I don't sense that he cared about worshiping Jesus, and yet, would you flip to Mark 3? This was early in our series, just a few months ago. Look at Mark 3, verses 13 and 14. This seems so important in this specific moment. Mark 3, verses 13 and 14. And he, Jesus, went up on the mountainside and he summoned those whom he himself wanted. And they came to him and he appointed twelve so that they would be with him and so that he could send them out to preach. Judas, the betrayer, was at this very moment wanted by Jesus. Lewis hypothesized last week as the basketfuls of bread pieces was gathered and there were 12 of them and he wondered out loud perhaps about each one of those disciples. Still at this point, perhaps the opportunity that Judas could have been one of those that would have held one of those basketfuls of broken pieces declaring, I, your God, am able to provide for you. And now, in our story, an intimate moment with Judas. John names Judas Iscariot. And we see verse 7, Therefore Jesus said, Let her alone. It would not be a stretch to say, Leave her alone. Again, if these words could jump off the two-dimensional page, can you imagine if you or I were in any kind of a form of bullying of some sort, mild or extreme, and it was Jesus saying, leave her alone. If it was not a sober celebration yet, perhaps at this moment. Notice that Jesus hints at his death here. Let her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. Perhaps someone thinks, I wonder why he's talking about his death. The cross is in view. The cross is in view. Mary is choosing to be a blessing to Jesus in this moment. And it's as if Jesus is saying, Judas, don't let your bitterness infect her because you have no clue what she's going to do with the rest of this nard. Mary is locked in. Judas is locked in. Two people locked in. 
beauty and betrayal. I sense that they are both passionate about it. Verse 8, For you always have the poor with you, but you do not always have me. Jesus goes right to the phony thought from Judas like he actually cares about the poor. Judas, since you care so much about the poor, the poor will always be among you, but Judas, you will not always have me. There has been intimacy with Mary, there has been intimacy with Judas, and intimacy with me and you. Jesus says, don't miss me. Just a few applications. If you could cut through all of the busy, all of the hurt, all of the numbness, all of the anything that is a part of you this morning, if you could cut through all of that, do you have any awareness? Are you missing him? Are you missing him? Mary's moment is not prescriptive, but it is descriptive. Damon, what is descriptive of your heart with Jesus? And you, what is descriptive of your heart with Jesus? Is the thought of being at Jesus' feet, pouring yourself out before Him demonstratively uncomfortable or strange for you or me? Is the thought of being in this kind of posture, which is described in Scripture for us, is it uncomfortable for you? Is it uncomfortable for me? Explore that with Him. Explore that with Him. He is not prescribing it, but His Word and the pouring out of His life are describing it. Students and children, there's so much to risk to bring out your jar of perfume in your life. I wonder if he's whispering to any of you to flip the costs where it's too costly not to scandalously offer your life in worship to him. What if what begins to burn inside of you is not, oh, there's so much risk involved in offering my life in passionate worship of Jesus, whatever that looks like described in your life, what if the opposite began to be true in you students, in our body? Judas was wanted by Jesus and was still his betrayer. I wrote these words two or three years ago. I think about what it was like to be one of Jesus' disciples. It's really staggering to really stop and think about what they encountered because of being connected with Jesus during his life. 
I can imagine them shaking their heads at times and just wondering if this really all real and shaking their heads again and wondering how they got on the inside with Jesus. The Jesus, the, the adrenaline surge of watching Jesus heal, feed, free, teach, and cast out. The awe of watching Jesus heal, feed, free, teach, and cast out. The humbling of watching Jesus heal, feed, free, teach, and cast out. You're one of the twelve experiencing the communal adventure of the humbling awe and adrenaline of being Jesus' friend. And then just a chapter later from our passage in John 13. Bible book of John chapter 13 verses 18 to 30. And then in the disciple group, that balance of being in and being known starts to narrow. I am not referring to all of you, Jesus says. What does he mean he's not referring to all of us? They begin to wonder. I am telling you now before it happens, he continues, what is he going to tell us before it happens? They're hanging on his words and then the words, one of you is going to betray me. Silence. One of you is going to betray me. The disciples stare at each other and stare and keep staring. One of us, shock, disappointment, disbelief, bewilderment, and then the words that everyone but one has been screaming inside but not yet dare say out loud. Who is it? Said reluctantly. Said angrily. Said bitterly sad said nervously it is the one to whom I will give this piece of bread when I have dipped it in the dish narrower this is really happening we're about to find out I'm about to find out so he dips the piece of bread and he gave it to me And Judas. And you. Judas is Jesus' betrayer. And I. And you. We disciples and sinners betray Jesus. And here is one of the crazy love moments from these events that actually is really hard to believe and accept. Jesus invests his life in his betrayer. Lastly, the cross is in view. Preacher Alistair Begg tells the story of the thief on the cross when they were dying. And he gets to heaven and he's asked, how did you get here? And the thief says, I don't know. And he's pressed. How did you get here? I don't really know. And pressed one more time, the thief on the cross says, the one 
on the middle cross says, I can come. The one on the middle cross says, you can come. What no eye has seen, no ear has heard, no heart has imagined what God has prepared for those who, and of all the things that could be filled in that would make a lot of sense, this is what we get. Who love Him. In the midst of the absolute chaos of our world, the absolute chaos of our country, and the absolute chaos of my and your heart, there is an invitation from the one on the middle cross to love him scandalously. 